As we begin our message this morning, would you all just join me in reading out loud these words uh, with which we're starting each of our messages in this series. We are the beloved of the Lord. In love, he created us. In love, he came to us. In love, he died for us. In love, he makes us his own, folding us into his love transforming us by his love, sending us out in his love. By our love, this world will know that we are his. By our love, this world will see him in us as he lives his life of love in us and through us to the glory of God. Before we go any further, I think it's just helpful for us to pause and think for just a moment about how much of the Christian life is played out between two of the statements that we just made together. We are the beloved of the Lord, and in love, God makes us his own, transforming us by his love. As an act of utterly undeserved grace and love. He accepts us and welcomes us and draws us into his love as Savior. And then as King, he sets about making us into objects worthy of that love, making us into fit company for eternity, men and women and young people who reflect and fulfill the loving purposes of God. And that too is an expression of his undeserved love, isn't it? As he makes us more and more and more into the people he designed and created us to be from the start. It seems as though all of the joys and challenges, all of the gifts and costs of the Christian life reside between those two basic beliefs and affirmations that we have. That God's love leads him to accept me as I am, and that God's love leads him to transform me into who he intends for me to be. And it's into that gap between those two eyes that James writes almost everything that he writes in this letter that we are exploring. It certainly is true of the passage that we are looking at this morning, uh, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 which say, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Now, before we look at the specifics of this passage... I just want to frame in a really important Christian belief that we share as followers of Jesus that stands as the backdrop against this whole passage that we're looking at. It's the idea of the will, which is just the ability of an individual to make decisions for themselves, to act on their own volition, to be, to be able to be the one who says, I will Whatever, I will say this, I will choose this, I will decide this. According to the Bible, obviously, and this makes sense to us as we think about it, God has a will. He exercises it all the time in both creation and redemption. In Revelation chapter 4, it says that God created us 
in accordance with his will. And one of the things I love is that you discover biblically that whenever it talks about what is the will of God, it also is synonymous with the idea of what is the pleasure of God. Revelation 4, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, for your pleasure, they were created to have their being. And in several different places in the book of Ephesians, as well as lots of other places in the rest of scripture, it speaks of the will of God governing redemption as well as creation. One example, verse 11 in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. So God has a will. But now think of this. God could have created everything else without a will so that his was the only will being expressed in all of existence. But he didn't do that. He chose to give us a will as well. God didn't want to be worshipped by robots. He wanted us to worship him and obey him as a choice that we make. A choice that he makes possible, yes, but a free choice that we make nonetheless. So God created us in his image, meaning among many other things, that he also gave us as human beings the gift of a free will, the ability to choose for ourselves. Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. I give you your will. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And here is my will. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You are free to choose, but this is what I ask of you. Here is your will. Here is mine. So God has a will, and we have a will, and so much of the spiritual life pivots on the relationship between those two wills, doesn't it? God's desire is for our two wills to align. And that's our desire, too. We want nothing more than for what pleases God to line up with what pleases us. And God wants nothing more than that as well. But there are two ways that that can happen. God wants us to line our wills up with his. But we want God to line up his will with ours. I still remember a time when I was in Montreat, North Carolina, and I was walking along and praying about uh, the kind of the wisdom of God and direction of God in my life at that point and where things seemed to be going. And, and I remember saying to him, now, wait a minute, when do I get a say? <laughs> you may remember from our Christmas series and the Christmas Eve message that one of the primary reasons that Jesus came to earth is, quote, to enable humanity to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And the key to our doing that, as Mary so beautifully models for us when God chooses her to carry his son, is for us to submit our wills to his will, to say yes to him in the same way that Mary did when she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. So God says to his people in Psalm 
32, verses 8 and 9, what he says in many different ways and in many different places all through the scriptures, that as an act of worship, we are invited to line up our will and our understanding with God's. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you, or um, I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. I love this line from the poem by Tennyson called In Memoriam, in which Tennyson, uh, it's this uh, couplet pair of of lines together. He says, our wills are, are ours, we know not how. And he's saying, how could this be that God allowed another will to be introduced into creation alongside of his own? How in the world could God give us this much freedom to choose and to act independently as human beings? It is an absolutely baffling mystery to us beyond our comprehending that God would bestow on us as a gift to us in love to give us dignity, that God would bestow on us so much freedom of will that we could exercise it even to oppose the very God who created us. Our our wills are ours We know not how. Our wills are ours to make them thine. God has a will that lies behind every one of his good and loving purposes. And in love, God dignifies us by giving us a will, and he invites us to line up our will with his will in the big things and in the small things. That's the best way that we can love him as our creator And God inviting us to align our wills with his is the best way he can love us as his creatures. So that's the theological idea that lies behind and makes sense of this passage that we are exploring this morning. So let's walk through it now. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You may remember that the passage we started with last time Verse 2 of chapter 1 in the letter of James begins with the idea of when, when you fall into various trials. This passage we're exploring this morning starts with the idea of if, if you should happen to lack wisdom, though I think it really would be fair to translate this when or even whenever. In my devotional reading this morning or this week, uh, yesterday morning, I came again to the story in 1 Kings chapter 3 of the newly crowned King Solomon asking God for wisdom and understanding. And here's why, he says. I'm only a little kid, and I have no idea how to carry out my duties. He wasn't exactly a little kid at that point. He was a grown man. But he felt like a little kid. How often do we feel exactly that same thing, that we are like little kids, and we really don't know what we're doing? Well, James says, as often as you feel that, just Ask God for wisdom. So a quick peek at what's to come in the chapters ahead in James' letters makes us realize that there are a whole lot of circumstances when, as followers of Jesus, we might feel like we really don't know how we should think about something or what we should do. How should we see this from God's perspective? So over these five chapters, James will address the need for wisdom when we face trials and when we feel tempted to cave into desire and when we have 
more money or less money than we think we need. And when we are confronted with someone who has a need and when we feel hurt or angry with someone and when we open our mouths to speak and when we feel like we're having to do without something that we feel that we deserve or need or when we are sick and at the end of ourselves or when we're making plans for the future, just to name some of the themes that James addresses in this letter. All incredibly relevant and timely issues, wouldn't you say? So what is wisdom? The elders looked at this passage earlier this week, and I think Tom Jameson put his finger uh, right on what James has in mind here. Wisdom is seeing how God sees things and seeing how God purposes things. How does he see them and how does he intend that they would be? So the will and the wisdom of God are closely connected and interlapping ideas. Now remember we said last time that the wisdom that comes from below leaves God out of the picture and the wisdom that comes from on high puts God right in the center of the picture. So God's wisdom is the capacity for me to see God at the center of whatever I am in the middle of or wrestling with and seeing and understanding what his purposes are. So James says, if you lack, and really when you lack, or whenever you lack, or every single time you lack, which we often will, a sense of how God sees things and how God purposes things in the situation we're in, well then, just ask him. You may remember in a sermon a long time ago, uh, I used the example of life being like a box that we live in. And in that box, there's me and there's all the stuff I have to contend with. And if I leave the lid on the box, then it's all up to me to figure out how to deal with it all. But, and that's wisdom from below. That's wisdom that leaves God out of the picture. But if I take the lid off of the box, then my life is still the same. It's me and all the stuff I have to contend with. But it also just so happens that the God of the universe is available to me in all of his resources, in all of his bounty to be present to me in the midst of whatever I face. That is seeing all things from a perspective of wisdom. So what will happen when I ask God for wisdom? The the threefold promise that James puts out here is incredibly inviting and reassuring, isn't it? God says, I am not stingy with my wisdom. I'll give it generously to you. And God says, I don't play favorites with my wisdom. I'll give it to anybody who asks me. And I won't judge you when you ask me for wisdom. I'm not holding your limitations and shortcomings against you. I'm not going to ask you why you couldn't figure this out for yourself and had to come and ask me. I'm not going to ask you why you're so spiritually immature that you would have to ask God for his wisdom. I'm going to give it to you without finding fault. What a picture of the generous and gracious heart of God. Now think about this. Behind all of our dealings with God lies a picture that we have of him, a way of understanding what's true about God and what shapes his actions, his decisions. Whenever my grandfather, who I called Poppy, came to our door, I always ran up to him and I hugged him, partly because I knew that his pockets were always filled with candy And he was always eager to share it. What is the heart of God really like? 
when we think about approaching him. As we go along in James' letter, we're going to realize that this is something that James is deeply concerned about. He wants to make sure that we have a faithful understanding of the good heart of God, whether it's when we're going through trials, chapter one, at a loss for wisdom, chapter one, facing temptations, chapter one, experiencing needs, chapter four, praying for healing when we're sick, chapter five, waiting for Jesus's return, chapter five, Jesus or James wants to be sure that we know how good and trustworthy and loving the God that we are approaching really is. He keeps coming back to God's good and trustworthy character. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Think about your own life circumstances right now. What is something that you would be helped to see from God's perspective? Where in your life do you need God's wisdom? Take a moment right now just to ask God to be generous and give that wisdom to you. Ask him to allow you to see him at the center of whatever it is and to see his purposes in it. Several years ago, we identified five values that we aspire towards as a church, especially values that we desire to see in each of our leaders. The very first one is expectant. It means that we believe God is really actively present and involved in every single moment of our lives. We should expect to encounter him. We should expect to run into him at every turn. And this passage captures beautifully the basis for that value. Our second value as a church is yielded. It means that our lives in their entirety are a yes to God. Our wills are lined up with his. And that's what the rest of this passage is getting at. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. In if verse 5 addresses what God is prepared to do when we ask for wisdom, verses 6 through 8 get at what we should be prepared to do when we ask for wisdom. But when you, when you ask, it says, you must believe and not doubt. What exactly is that getting at? I'm persuaded that it's not what we think. Think about this. The way that we usually think about belief and doubt happens in the realm of our minds suggests weighing what we know about God, the information that we have about him, and deciding whether or not we can put our confidence in him. And you know this, that faith and doubt reside alongside of one another, even among faithful followers of Jesus. This word, believe, actually has a whole spectrum of meaning that moves from the head and our thinking all the way over to our will and our choosing. And I think it's on that end of this word's meaning that James is, is intending that we would hear him. When we talk about belief, we talk about believing that, and then we talk about believing in, and then we talk about trusting in, and then we talk about entrusting ourselves to, and then we ultimately arrive at giving our allegiance to. That's what James is talking about here. Not, do you have complete confidence 
that God is capable of this. In the same way, the word doubt can mean just a thought process of questioning God's capacity or his trustworthiness in some way. But this word at its root has the idea of submitting something or someone to our scrutiny and approval. And isn't that our way, our reflexive way as human beings? God, you can do whatever you want as long as it is, as long as you explain it to me and I'm satisfied with your explanation and it meets my approval. So this word has at its root the idea of, of this doubt word of subjecting God to our scrutiny. So rather than meaning something like wondering if God really is a certain way or really is capable of something we might ask him to do, it can really mean something more in the realm of disputing with God or opposing God or contending against his authority. What this is really getting at is independence or autonomy of the will, wanting what we want instead of what he wants. Wait a minute. When do I get a say? I think James is really saying, ask for wisdom, yes. But when you ask, be ready to say, yes. Stand under God rather than standing out from under him, or worse, standing over him. Align your will with his. Don't insist that he align his will with yours. Because the one who doubts, the one who resists God's authority is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. This is a common image in the ancient world for someone who couldn't be relied on. So what's the problem with waves being shoved about by the wind? They aren't reliable. You don't know where they'll rise and where they'll fall. You can't predict which direction they're going to go. Rather than being tethered or anchored, they act independently and unreliably. Have, have any of you ever seen a movie that depicts two ships trying to come alongside one another in a wave-tossed and windy sea, and one person is trying to board one ship from the other ship. It's almost impossible. This passage is about God seeking to board us, to come on board as captain. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Well, no, wait a minute. That sounds like that directly contradicts what verse 5 says. Just a couple verses before where God says he'll give generously without finding fault. Now it seems like he's saying just the opposite. The person who doesn't ask right won't be given anything. But notice that verse 5 speaks about what will be given by God. And verses 6 through 8 speak about what will be received by us. That's two different things. This is a Travis Kelsey issue, not a Patrick Mahomes issue. It's not about what be, is being given, it's about what's being received. Several times this football season, I saw badly busted plays when the receiver was supposed to turn right and he turned left instead, or when he was supposed to take 10 steps and then look over his shoulder and he never looked over his shoulder or when he was supposed to go long and he just stopped and blocked someone. Well, when that happens, the receiver is acting independently from the quarterback. And when that happens, the ball will go right where it's supposed to go, 
but the receiver won't. The receiver won't be there when the ball gets there, which will always mean the receiver will come away empty-handed, and often the receiver will never even see the pass that's intended for him. Such a person, James says, is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, from everything we can tell, and I love this, James is the one who invented this word. This is the very first reference in ancient literature to this idea of being double-minded. Literally, it means two-souled or two-selfed. So the soul was understood to be the source of the person's desires and affections. It was the place of the heart's deepest allegiances. James says that the person who asks for God's wisdom but hasn't placed himself under God's authority is like two people trying to occupy one body, each one of them with a separate will. I will ask God for his perspective, but then I'm going to live on the basis of my own. I'll say that I want to put God at the center of the picture, but then I'll go and I'll leave him out of it altogether. I'm like two different people trying to live two different lives inside of a single body. It's interesting that the, the one other place that this word is used in Scripture is, is three chapters later in chapter 4, verse 8. And it's in a section that James introduces with these words. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. A word that refers to arranging yourself under someone else's authority. Subordinating yourself or submitting your will to the will of another. So James says that such a person is double-minded and unstable. This word actually means not standing under. It means refusing to place myself properly under another person's authority, another person's rightful and deserved authority. When we were looking at this passage uh, as elders together, Frankie Kung, who is originally from Hong Kong, as you may know, pointed out that the word that's used in the Chinese Bible to translate uh, this picture of submitting or yielding is a word that's based on the character for a stream of water. And it contrasts with another word that has to do with a horse being led and kind of sub subjecting its will. Think about how a stream flows. It doesn't debate with the land about which way it should go. It is in its nature to follow the stream's course. It just follows the stream bed, surrendering to the contours of the land, to the terrain of its will. I love and I am challenged by the truth that is found in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 17. It's a passage that I memorized years ago and that God keeps bringing back to my mind. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for a man to direct his steps. That passage has been important at several points along the way. I think God uh, calls us to seek his wisdom on the big things, the big decisions. Who will I marry? Where, what sort of work should I be engaged in? And so on. And this passage has been important for me. When I left seminary, finished seminary, and went to my first church, I knew in my wisdom right where I should go. It was a church where I would be the senior pastor, church of about 500 people. And there was this other church that I was considering as a church of 200 people where I'd be the associate pastor. And, and I looked at it out of duty. But I did have a yielded heart. 
And as we were praying about that, Sharon and I had both had the sense that the Lord was saying, David, right now, I'm more concerned with what I want to do in you than what I want to do through you. And this small church in Colorado is the place where I want to do that. And then years later, uh, when we were quite happily there in Colorado, then God began to stir in us that he was calling us to another place. There were about 10 opportunities in front of me. Again, I prayed through this passage again and again and again. And I knew the places that made sense for me to go. And this didn't happen to be one of them for a variety of reasons that I'd be glad to elaborate on another time. But uh, we were at the um, university, um, in the univers- what's, boy, I'm, what's the, the, at the union at the hotel there. And I was having my devotional time the, the next morning after we got here for our candidating conversation. And uh, the next passage I came to was Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 verse one talks about um, God being our home. And it was so clear that God was saying to me, David, this is not about where your home's going to be. This is about you finding in me your home. And this is the place I want you to do that. And I knew that before we even came into that day of conversations. But I believe God also wants us to seek his wisdom and to offer up our will to his in the smallest of things. I just got back from a, an incredible uh, conference in Charleston um, about C.S. Lewis. And uh, when we first got there, the, um, the person who was the host of the room that I, the Airbnb room that I had, a guy named Jason, um, said, tell me about this Lewis guy. I mean, didn't he like write children's stuff? I mean, why, like, what, what is your interest in that? And it's like, like, wasn't he kind of a spiritual guy? Because I'm like kind of a spiritual guy and I, we should get together and have a glass of wine and talk about this stuff when you're here. So he said that again after the first evening when I was down there. And to be honest, everything in me was saying, nope. <laughs> I don't feel great. I, I'm, I'd love to get some rest. I've got a lot of work I actually have to do before I go to bed tonight. But beneath that was this yes to God that I was convinced God was calling me to. And I said, Jason, that would be awesome. Let's do that. So we talked for an hour and a half that night over a glass of wine. And in short order, we moved from talking about uh, the, the foodie options in Charleston to talking about how Jason almost died during COVID and, uh, and how he's asking what the remaining days of his life are for. And he, uh, we ended up talking about Jesus and Uh, and I had a chance to pray for him, and he was in tears as uh, we prayed together. And, you know, it doesn't always go like that, Um, but it was so clear to me that what for me was just, um, God, this is what I want. Um, God had something else in mind, and uh, it was his appointment for me. So I just want to bring you back to the the thing that you um, had on your mind earlier about an area where you are asking for wisdom from God. Um, the, the Christian church has developed a tradition of a, of a prayer that's known as the prayer of indifference. The, the first place that we know of that it was written down was about 100 years ago, but it seems to have a history that goes way back past that. And I'm just going to put that up on the screen, and I'm gonna, here's how I'm going to ask us to close. Bring back to mind that area where you felt that you would benefit from wisdom and where you asked God for his wisdom. God, help me to see this as you see it. What are your purposes in this?
And now I invite us together to pray.